and welcome to the What in Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Latif Peracha, general partner of M13. Latif manages the overall investing strategy for M13 and has led deals across money and health verticals with a large focus on web3. He was previously the managing director at the Virgin Group where he led investing in the Americas including investments in Ring, Slack, Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit. He also serves on the advisory board at the University of Michigan. Join me as we explore Latif's journey from Bear Stearns to Ticketmaster to the Virgin Group, M13's unique propulsion platform for startups, the interesting world of Web3 investing, what working with Richard Branson is like, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Latif, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, where are you dialing in from? I'm dialing in from Englewood, which is just outside of New York City. Oh, wow. I've never been to Englewood. Is it like a suburb? Is it like um, like a office town? What is it? It is a suburb uh, right over the DW Bridge in uh, Bergen County in New Jersey. Yep. I uh, made the move with a family during COVID, and it reminds me very much of my uh, Michigan upbringing, which is very nice. Awesome. All right. So diving into the questions. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide a brief overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, sure. Um, so I mentioned I grew up in Michigan. I attended the University of Michigan, which I will argue is the greatest public university in the world. And after Michigan, I um, I went to Bear Stearns, where I was an investment banking analyst for a couple of years. From there, all my friends were moving into hedge funds and private equity. I wasn't as interested in, in any of that. Um, I moved to LA actually from New York and I worked uh, at IEC, particularly in biggest operating company at the time, which was Ticketmaster, very much internet uh, 1.0 and learned a tremendous amount during that uh, time. Secondary ticketing and StubHub was just hitting the scene. Uh, we were doing some investing off of our balance sheet. Uh, we spun out of IEC. There was a lot uh, that I learned in that experience. I came back to New York uh, to go to business school at, at Columbia during the global financial crisis uh, and really tried to get into venture from, from there. And I got linked up with uh, the team at Virgin Group, a uh, very, very unique investment firm, single LP structure, just managing the Branson family capital. And over eight years there, I left. When I left, I was a managing director looking after effectively everything we did in the US, got to work on you know, tremendous aerospace companies like Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit, but crucially also started our venture strategy where we invested uh, around $150 million into leading consumer technology companies. I was on the board of um, Ring uh, before I got bought by Amazon. Uh, we also were investors at, in, in Square and in TransferWise, now known as Wise, uh, and the remittance side of things. And uh, it was during that time that I really uh, learned how to be an investor and learned from you know, tremendous uh, people at Virgin. And after eight years, it was time to leave the Sir Richard Cocoon and come join Carter and Courtney, who started M13 alongside uh, Carl Alomar and, and other partners to, uh, to really build what we think is hopefully a very unique venture capital firm. So what is M13? Can you give me a brief description? Sure. Yeah. M13 uh, is an early stage consumer technology fund. We invest in seed uh, series A and select series B. We are very focused on also providing tremendous support for our companies. We're very, um, very, very hands-on with our portfolio. 
uh, I believe we will talk about this uh, maybe a little bit later, but we, uh, we, we built something called the propulsion platform, which um, allows us to really uh, deliver tremendous, uh, you know, service to, to our companies around what we think are critical areas around data, brand, uh, people and, and, and talent. And uh, we've got uh, world-class partners that wake up every single day thinking about those critical functions for our companies. And they have teams that can be both uh, strategic and tactical when it comes to um, that support. We have an office in LA and an office in New York. Uh, I joined for Fund2, which was $191 million, and we are currently deploying out of a $400 million vehicle. What fascinates me is your journey, right, from Bear Stearns to Ticketmaster to Virgin Group and now M13. These are all kind of very diverse roles. What inspired you to make these almost career pivots, I would say, and do you think there are a lot of transferable skills that you learned that now help you in your role at M13? It's funny you look at it as career pivots. To me, it all felt very natural, um, but I, I think I just followed my interests. And what was most important uh, for me was I was in an environment where I was working with and for people that I respected, and I, I learned a tremendous amount. Obviously, Bear Stearns gave me a, a basic uh, financial uh, foundation. I see Ticketmaster really around operating and and, and um, large scale companies. Virgin, I grew up as an investor and as a professional, you know, working for someone like Sir Richard and, and learning from you know, the way he sees the world, but also from uh, the chief investment officer, a guy named Nevin Lovell. Um, it was just a, a really, really um, tremendous kind of group of people. And if you actually look at the, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you actually look at what we'll, you know, classically call the, the Virgin Mafia that all worked in the... Uh, the office on Bleecker Street in Soho in New York, they all got on to do, you know, very, very interesting things. So Christine Choi is my partner here at M13. She runs brand and communications for us. Mike Brown is a, uh, a seed investor at his own fund called Bowery Capital. Uh, Dun Wang went on uh, to be chief product officer of Calm. Dan Porter went on to run OMG Pop and now Overtime, which is a very successful youth uh, sports network. Nervous Avramuti went on to start a cruise line. And so it was a very entrepreneurial place. Uh, so if you went on to be an investor, you probably went to go build a firm or join a firm like I did that was very early in its you know, development and you had a real chance to make your mark on it or you went to be an entrepreneur. And so to me, they were all very tied uh, and they led me to, to M13. Um, and it really was that time at Virgin, specifically on the venture side that I found my calling and what I wanted to do you know, when I grew up. So here we are. And talking about M13, right? Your investment thesis says understanding the future of consumer behavior. What does that mean? What does that entail? Can you share a bit about that? I will say it is purposely broad. And, you know, what it what it means is we are investing in the technologies that are powering that change. And so if you look at the history of the firm, they were investors, or M13, you know, prior to many of us joining, which was really just Carter and Courtney, um, they invested in some great DTC brands like Daily Harvest and consumer te- technology companies like Ring, Lyft, and Class Class. Um, but if you look at where we're investing over the last 36 months, it has been very little what would be DTC. It's been enabling technologies. It's been in distribution channels that are much more B2B2C. So getting to the user through the doctor or through the employer 
And I think that's, you know, really, really important to understand in terms of where we've been spending our time. So the future of consumer behavior is going to be powered by what we think are, um, you know, enabling technologies. And we think about the world in four major buckets. It's the future of money, the future of health, the future of work, and the future of commerce. And so money includes everything from prop tech to B2B payments to consumer fintech. Work includes everything from the future of employee benefits in the workplace to the creator economy. So these are broad buckets and, and that is done by design. And so what's interesting about Web3, which is a big focus of ours, is where we're moving down the stack everywhere else, we're actually moving up the stack in Web3. In the first decade, if you look back to when you know the Bitcoin white paper came out and I believe you know 2008 or 2009, it's really been around infrastructure. These blockchains are... Uh, fundamentally uh, infrastructure plays. And we are investors in Solana and in Lightning Labs, which is built about Bitcoin. But what happened during COVID is we had our first breakthrough application uh, and that's in NFTs. And so we, we were very excited for the, for the future applications that we think are really um, around the corner. And, um, you know, we can dive into that if you would like. Of course. So like, I, I know everyone has heard of Web3 now, but what is Web3? Can you break it down for us? I'll try. I mean, it really is just a moniker. Um, it used to be called crypto, and I think maybe there's you know certain you know certain implications of, of certain um, you know titles. But really, what it is is really building what we think are you know token economies that uh, incentivize users and teams and networks within uh, the same token currency. So you're really looking for um, the alignment of, uh, as I said, users, uh, investors, and, and, and teams to generate what we think are much, much greater networks. And so network effects, whether you're talking about Web 2 or Web 3, are, are critical. Um, but we think that a network that was not reliant on advertising, was not reliant on exorbitant take rates, but instead um, incentivized the user's through uh, a native token could be much, much more powerful. And that I think is the, you know, the promise of, uh, of Web3. And you touched upon this earlier. What makes M13 unique? You mentioned the, the proportion platform. What is that? And what sets M13 apart from other venture funds? Sure. So I think in terms of the propulsion platform, that is our name for our support system for our founders. And what we think really sets it apart is just the quality and the caliber of the people that we have that are, are running it. And then we combine that with systems that we've built that allow us to, you know, hopefully scale as, uh, as our, as our funds and, and, um, you know, our portfolio companies scale. And as I mentioned, we've got, you know, world-class people uh, around uh, brand data, people and talent. And those people, I think are the number one, uh, you know, differentiator of, for us, and it's the ability for us to be both strategic at a at a board level, so that while you know I may be your board member, you have a direct relationship uh, with every other partner at the firm. Where most venture firms, you, you know, you have your lead investor, and that's about it. With us, it's a much more collaborative collaborative environment where a founder um, knows Christine uh, or knows Matt Hoffman on the people and talent side, or you know. Spends time with Carl Alomar, who's one of the other GPs who has spent, you know, his whole career 
building and scaling companies, including DigitalOcean, which is uh, you know now a public a public uh, company that he was at before its uh, before its Series A. So we have a lot of experience that I think we can bring to bear. One of our mantras is you know we've all made mistakes, and if we can you know have our founders learn from our mistakes and our experiences, that can help them avoid um, some of the same pitfalls that that we have faced. You just raised your third fund for four hundred million dollars. You have fifteen portfolio companies that have achieved a valuation of one billion or more. What's the secret sauce? How do you make it happen? Well, we're still early. We want to build something that um, you know uh, lasts much longer than any of us uh, at, at the firm over the next several decades. But I think if you look back to the history, we've always been early. And as I mentioned, Carter and Courtney really led Fund One and investing in Ring in 2012, which was really a you know a doorbell business, uh, online doorbell business, and that was predicated on this idea that people would want cloud storage of footage feels very obvious now at the time was not really that obvious or that you were going to reinvent frozen foods and have them delivered to people's houses in 2015 when they invested in daily harvest. Um, you know, there's, there's real foresight that goes along with making some of those investments. And so I think our, our success has come from being early and being right on how markets um, were going to play out and then backing, you know, the right founders. So if you look at, the 2019 uh, vintage fund, I mentioned we were investors in Lightning Labs, you know, to invest in the, you know, the, the bottom of the bear market into a layer two above the Bitcoin protocol was not an obvious investment to make. And uh, we're so early in that story, but uh, what we feel like the, the tailwinds behind that business um, are, are significant. Similarly, in the new fund, we are investors in a company called Nori which is a carbon removal marketplace that pays uh, farmers and, and, and other uh, potential uh, supply of, of, of carbon removal now in dollars and soon in their own uh, native crypto token called Nori. We did that about you know 12 months or 14 months ago, and that market was not obvious then. And since, um, if you look at the intersection of crypto and climate, it's gotten very hot. And, and again, that business has, you know, uh, a long way to go, but we're very, very encouraged by what we're seeing there. And so it's this ability, I think, to constantly be a little bit early to a trend and then hopefully, you know, backing, um, you know, great people to, to, to build those companies. So I go back to the crypto and climate comment. But first, I would love to understand how do you evaluate a potential investment, right? Can you walk me through the process from the time you are approached for by an entrepreneur to the time you close the deal? What do you look for? What parameters are there? Sure. Um, so first I'll say, you know, we are in the business of saying no, which is an unfortunate, you know, position to take. But the reality is we do less than 1% of the deals that we see, whether inbound or, or, or outbound. And so getting a deal done um, is uh, for any partner or any person in the firm or certainly on the other side for an entrepreneur is, is not an easy thing. Um, but I think what we look for ultimately are just tremendously deep tailwinds uh, in a market. So does a business have a better right to exist in three, five, seven, ten years on the road than it does today? And are something we're seeing in the market that leads us to believe that they are going to uh, potentially be a winner in that market? And and so that's one in terms of um, the insights that we that we discover in talking to an entrepreneur. And then we spend a lot of time 
thinking about that entrepreneur and thinking about their history and their motivations and why do they start this business? Uh, there's a concept called founder market fit, and we, we talk about that a lot. Is it because they're domain experts and they've been doing this for a long time, and so therefore they have um, you know a unique ability to continue to, to work in that market? Do they have something very personal happen to them? You know, we see this uh, oftentimes um, in healthcare, where something personal happens to somebody or their family, and therefore that inspires them to start a company to fix that issue. Uh, so those are the two biggest ones, honestly. And then, um, you know, we're traditionally a lead investor. So when we lead rounds, uh, we take board seats, we like to have 15% of, of the company and then fill the syndicate with, you know, other, um, you know, other interested parties. Web3 is a completely different uh, animal when it comes to, uh, you know, syndicates and deal structures. And, and uh, maybe that's for, for another day. But I will, I'll, I'll use Nori as a, you know, good example. You know, Nori is um, a business in, in the carbon removal space. And the insight that we learned was actually the whole offset market is focused on the wrong area, which is future offsets and, uh, and, and offsetting your future footprint. But if we don't actually take a trillion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, we're not going to get back to um, a level of, of safety. And so that was like a really important insight. And yes, now carbon removal has gotten uh, to be a very prominent market, but they were early to it. And then secondarily, they were fixing the issues around double and triple counting through the blockchain. So you could uh, verify that this carbon has been removed. And in fact, as a buyer, you are issued an NFT that tells you, Tarang, my, my ton of carbon has been removed in, um, you know, this, this farm in, in Nebraska. And, and that is verified. And so that is a very, very powerful kind of real world application of, of Web3 that, you know, we are, we were looking for, you know, for more of those. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. I was, you know, down in uh, Nebraska visiting some of these farmers with the CTC commissioner, uh, Caroline Pham and the, and the team. And these farmers were actually asking us, when are we going to stop getting paid in US dollars? And when are we going to start receiving this token? Because they believe that, the world will uh, demand more out of out of out of this carbon market, and that pricing of the carbon market will only increase because of the need. And so, it's a very very you know interesting company, multiple tailwinds behind it, and we couldn't be you know more excited to see where it goes. Sort of continuing on that path, right? There was has been a lot of conversation, not just right now, but for the past couple of years around crypto and climate. And now with the Ethereum merge, it has I think just become more of a hot topic. So could you tell me a bit about your views on that, on this, that whether cryptos or blockchain as a tech is inefficient or is it better that we just keep innovating on that tech and at the side we invest in technologies or platforms that can do carbon offsets like with Nori. And as a follow on to that, could you also talk a bit more about Nori is that who pays for these carbon offsets? How does that entire chain work? Sure. So, um, I think the merge was incredibly important. Uh, Ethereum is obviously a massive player in the market and having a proof of stake networks um, is very, very important for, for our environment. So I think that was a massive milestone for the industry. Um, but whether you're talking about uh, Nori or uh, any other, you know, what's really an, an application, they're all built on top of a of, of blockchain. So, so Nori is partnering, um, you know, with Polygon, which is, Built on top of Ethereum, so these these are all very much interconnected uh, in order to launch their 
in order to launch their token. So it's important that the the layer ones are much more environmentally friendly. And then I think that Nori is almost um, the fact that they are doing carbon removal just so happens to be the application and and they have to pick a uh, an L one to work with. And so having the full stack be one that is focused on being much more green, I think is, is critical to, you know, to not just the planet, but I think also to the longevity of this, um, of this industry. So that is important. Um, and with your, to your question on how does it, how does it work? So, uh, you know, we've on the buyer side, you have everyone from web three companies, NFT companies to rock and roll bands to small businesses that are all buying what is called an NRT, which is a 10 year contract that basically says uh, this this ton of carbon will be sequestered in, right now the first application is in, in soil. So it gets sequestered in soil that is um, owned by these farmers. And so on the buy side, you basically say, I want to I want to buy a ton of carbon removal. You go to Nori, you buy that. Um, and that NRT has already been authenticated because the, the supply side um, has verified that the carbon is, is in fact um, uh, in their soil, and they get issued these NRTs that are then transferred to to the buyer. Right now, Nori facilitates that transfer and takes a small fee as part of their business model. So it's a very classic GMV based marketplace. Um, but what will happen soon is, um, and they're public about this, they're relaunching a token to govern the whole system. And so farmers will now only be being paid in their native token, the Nori. And also we think that the Nori token can be used for price discovery. So right now, if you go into Google, very easy to see, you know, what the price of crude oil is. You can't go in and say, what is the price of carbon? It doesn't exist. And so they want the token to not only govern their marketplace, but they want it to become the standard for price discovery of carbon. Interesting. My next question is around growth and scaling. Is M13 currently hiring? If yes, what is that you look for in the people that you want on board? And the second part to that question is, given the very specific area of investment that you dabble in, is finding the right talent difficult? So uh, M13 is always looking for talent. Are we hiring specifically today? I don't know actually the answer to that, but we are always looking to talk to smart people. And generally as a firm, we are growing. Uh, and so, and we are ambitious and that um, ambition will require us to have, uh, you know, very smart people on, on board, more people on board. So we are open for business uh, on that front. And then um, regarding quality of people or the kinds of people that we, we look for, we are looking, it depends on where in the, in the business we are, we are looking, but we certainly are looking for people, I think, that um, both have experience and have tremendous um, you know, potential, and there's always trade-offs there. But uh, we want people that have the same ethos that we have, which is keeping a beginner's mindset, um, being intellectually curious, really believing that um, helping our companies uh, operationally is, is important. And it's, it's important to note that we are a band of outsiders at the firm. No one at M13 has come, I should check this, but I'm almost sure, top to bottom, no one has really come from a, uh, certainly not the partners, have come from a, you know, a, tra- a trained, classically trained VC background. And because of that, it gives us, I think, ability to, to go back to first principles, everything from portfolio construction and how we do that, 
all the way to how we support our companies through propulsion. But we, one thing we do do, we constantly um, talk about and respect the way that returns are generated in this industry, which is, you know, through the power law, which basically means you need to have some great investments in your portfolio. You know, we, we kind of joke around. It's like this asset class is so unique. If, as if your neighbor, you walked up to your neighbor who was a financial advisor and that neighbor said to you, please give me your money for 10 years. I might give it back sooner, but no promises. And I'm going to make, you know, 10 investments for you. And three of them are going to go to zero. Three or four of them are, yeah, you might get your money back. And I promise you three of them are going to be huge. That's honestly the way this industry works. And there's no other asset class in the world that operates like that. And it wouldn't be a continued uh, decades-long asset class that's been growing significantly if it wasn't because it generates significant returns. But it is incumbent uh, to be in great companies. Uh, it could be a great fund and to have really top quartile or top decile returns in order to continue to, 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 to raise funds and, and um, really generate a return for our investors. For the next segment, I want to get your opinion on the fintech and Web3 landscape overall, right? So since you started working at M13, have you seen any evolution in the fintech investing landscape and to an extent in the Web3 fintech uh, investing landscape as well? Uh, yeah. So on fintech, it's obviously uh, it was a very, very hot market for you know a couple of years. And since then, just if you look at multiples, they've compressed uh, you know, significantly. Many of the public companies are down 60, 70, 80 percent. I would say the things that we are focused on now, or maybe it's easier for me to talk about where we're not focused. Um, you know, we, we are not as interested in traditional uh, banking as a service types of companies because, you know, we believe that it's really important to you know, own your core infrastructure over time. While those businesses are nice uh, from an app being asset light standpoint, we think it makes businesses fairly commoditized and also very challenging from a you know, unit economic standpoint, because every one of your partners, you know, needs to take a piece of the pie. And we're also uh, not very interested in lending businesses today. Businesses that are built on cost of capital arbitrage are not ones that we think probably have massive level of endurance um, over a five, seven, 10 year time frame. So those are areas we're not as interested in. I would say where we are interested in is uh, much more on the on the Web three side, and so I had mentioned you know, NFTs as this really interesting technology that finally had its first application breakthrough. But it's much bigger than that. So if you actually think what an NFT could represent, if you are a, a creator, that in the code we can actually uh, determine in perpetuity how money is going to flow is very very important. So if you're an artist and I sell you a piece. I know that if that piece gets resold 10 times, I will always get 20% of that resale. That is, I mean, people understand that, but it's profound in terms of what it will do for um, any type of creator economy, um, you know, going forward. One of the reasons why I got really excited by um, the Web3 industry is back in 2017, when I first learned about smart contracts, if you think about the way um, cap tables and financial documents are managed today, it's, it's very, very um, antiquated. It's very human-based. So if you think about it, you have a lawyer, a junior lawyer sitting in an office that basically that formulates a cap table. And then they look at the legal documents and they want to make sure that the cap table and the legal document actually make a ton of sense. 
The reality is it is prone to human error. And I would argue there's probably been billions of dollars that have gone to the wrong hands because liquidation preferences, waterfalls, all kinds of things are, are, are up for human interpretation. And so smart contracts to me represented this way of effectively making sure that there was a source of truth. And um, if you think about what that could mean going forward for fintech, and you can put financial assets on chain and you could take a package of investments and actually package them into an NFT and sell that NFT that within that NFT both had the investments and had all the subsequent rights that came along with those investments, it would be a very, very powerful way of, of looking at um, you know the future and fixing a lot of, I think, problems that we have today that probably are not as, as discussed. Now, we're not going to be there today or tomorrow, but I do think over the next several years, it's a very interesting uh, trend in fintech and in Web3 that I'm focused on. Glad you touched upon NFT, right? Because... As you said, we are actually seeing first applications of NFT in term, in the creator economy. And this is very different from what people usually laugh at NFTs about being just glorified pictures, right? But my question is, how do you price fractional ownership or having a share in NFTs? It's up to the creator to decide. And that's, I think, what's, it, what's interesting. Um, an NFT, where does it originate? It originates from somebody who decides they're going to issue it and they're going to issue it because they think that there's demand for it. And so you could argue in, in many cases, um, if you want to have a much more limited quantity, if you're talking about like, let's say a musician, and with that came very special rights around maybe ownership of the, of the mastery of the master, um, you know, uh, recordings, or it could be around, know, access to um, certain things around uh, real life events, you can put whatever you want into the NFT. And I think that's what's very interesting. And you can price it accordingly. So you may say, I'm going to only issue one NFT. And I'm going to say, I'm going to give up ownership of a a master document or or recording. Or I might say, you know, allow, let's pick a very uh, band that has a rabid fan base, uh, a radio head or or even in pop culture, or Harry Styles decides I'm going to issue an NFT that allows for uh, my favorite fan to uh, tour the world with me. I mean, that would go for you know significant amount of money. Harry Styles is probably a bad example because he has a lot of money. But if you have a more emerging artist that has a small but rabid fan base, it is a very good way of patronage so that that artist can um, generate real income. Uh, and also reward um, their their most loyal fans. So on pricing, I really think it comes down to the artist. But in terms of the financialization of it, you are now seeing platforms that will fractionalize NFTs, or maybe an NFT is very expensive. So there's few in your five buddies want to go all in on this together. There are now platforms that allow for that. Um, and so you know, the market will evolve. There will be lending services, there will be fractionalization services, you can rent an NFT, you can buy an NFT. There, this stuff is all very, very early, but um, the market around it will be very vibrant. And um, you know, this is the first real cycle where you know, crypto and Web3 have faced the same down cycle as the broader market. Over the last 10 years, it's basically been one big bull market for the broader market. And so it will be interesting to see how long this market stays uh, flat uh, to down, my suspicion is that it will take some time for it to come back. But in this time is, you know, when there will be real builders. Um, and it's my belief that 
these token networks that will emerge out of the next upcycle will be the next kind of generational networks that we all remember, whether that's the Airbnbs or the Ubers, and time will tell. For my last segment, what I'd like to do is a series of, of rapid fire questions to introduce you more as a person to our listeners. My first question, and I think you can guess this one is, what was it like to work with Mr. Branson? It was remarkable. He is a very uh, unique man and uh, somebody that I'm so close with. Uh, he's a mentor. He's an investor in our funds. And I think I learned from him is, you know, just the most optimistic, just be optimistic. Um, he's the most optimistic person um, that I've ever met. He also has by far the biggest risk appetite of anyone I've ever met. Um, so that you got to take a little bit with a grain of salt, but you know, no risk, no reward. So I think um, learning that from him was really important. I mean, he, he's his ability to will things into existence, and that is very, very, uh, very unique. What is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? I don't know if it's fun, but I'm a rabid music fan. And as a side job, I've always thought music supervising uh, would be such a fun fun thing to do when I, when I grow up. But uh, as a side job, I, uh, I did some music journalism and I had the great privilege of interviewing some of my uh, favorite artists, including um, a musician called Nick Cave in Australia, uh, who I met in New York in 2013. By far single most nervous meeting of my life. So I'm um, glad it, it went fine. That's so cool. What's your genre of music? What do you enjoy? Well, I would say, um, you know, I like a lot of, um, I would call it, uh, man, it's tough to pigeonhole me, my friend, but I would say probably you know, indie rock and some electronic music and, um, and really, uh, Things that I think will last the test of time. Big fan of folks like Nick Cave and, and Leonard Cohen um, and, and artists like that. Awesome. If you had a time machine and you could go back in time, let's say 10 years or 20 years ago, what advice would you give a young Latif? Just have more bias to action. And I don't think I was afraid to fail, but certainly I uh, tend to be more cerebral. And I think, you know, just being more focused on on action and, 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 and seeing where things go versus maybe trying to over-optimize for what might be the right investment path, et cetera, um, is probably something I, I would I would go back and do. And that's one of the things, you know, in building, being an M13 and help building the firm and, and um, really kind of trying to make our mark, uh, there is such a bias to action because we have so much to do. My last question is, what advice would you give young graduates or current students who want to work in venture capital? Would you recommend that they gain some operating experience first, or would you recommend that they join a fund and get hands-on experience in how to be a VC? First off, I would say it's very hard to go straight into a fund. Um, if you can do it, I think by all means, there are a few funds that, that hire out of undergrad or, or even, I think MBAs, if it's towards MBAs, I think it's a lot easier than undergrads. Um, if you can go directly into a venture fund, I think that's, the, and you want to go into venture, that's what I would do. I think that, that if, that's challenging sometimes. So working at a well-funded startup that's got great VCs or you got real backing, I think would be um, really important. And then out of my undergrad, at least I went to uh, invest in banking, I would advise probably against that. I would, to me, Google and Meta and Microsoft, these are to me like the bulge bracket 
firms of today, I would go work in product or maybe even in corporate development or whatever it is in one of these big tech companies as if you want to have that kind of bigger bald bracket um, experience. Awesome. On that note, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Thank you.